an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Join Prize Picks, America's number one fantasy sports app with more than 3 million members. You can win up to 25 times your money by picking more or less. Download the app today and use code MIB for a first deposit match of up to $100. This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! Welcome to a Men in Blazers pod special. Our guest today is a World Cup bound manager, a gent who once walked Premier League fields first as a player. And then a boss, first at Swansea City, then at Wigan Athletic, the club for which he'd starred in the number six role, and beginning in 2013, mighty Everton Football Club. In 2016, he became the manager of the Belgian national team, leaving his home in England to move to the site of one of my birth country's greatest away games of all time. Waterloo, where he and his family now live. His Diable Rouge have a record of 11 wins, four draws and one loss since he took the helm. And this summer, the Balaguer-born Spaniard will lead a virtual all-star team, a murderer's row of Premier League talent. Thibaut Courtois, Toby Alderweireld, Jan Vertonghen, Vonson Company, Eden Hazard, Kevin De Bruyne, Romelu Lukaku, and perhaps the greatest of all, the angry dandelion, Marouan Fellaini, into World Cup action in Russia. The team booked their spot in Putin's backyard by winning all but one of their 10 qualifying matches, scoring an astonishing 43 goals in the process, a tally betted only by reigning champions Germany. It's a far cry from how he spent the last World Cup Stuck with me and Davo in our Copacabana panic room. We welcome back to the pod the one and only Mr. Roberto Martinez. <laughs> what a great introduction, Rogers. Oh, Roberto. Bonvenue, as they say in Walloon. When I last saw you, you were a Premier League manager at Everton. The end of your tenure, a true challenge. You're an eternal optimist as a human being. But it was quite a grind at the end. Why Belgium? Did part of you just crave a complete change? Well, yeah, I think it goes down to the diversity and the quality of this group of footballers that they represent Belgian football. The opportunity of working in a World Cup is unique and special. But the difference between club football management and international management, they are completely different creatures. Club football, as a manager, you're with your squad of players on the training ground every single day. If you have a problem at a position... The transfer window will, please God, solve that problem. International teams, you go to war with the army you have, and they're such a fleeting beast. 
I mean, players paratroop in from all over the world for three, four days at a time, two, three training sessions only, and then they split and are gone. How much can an international manager actually do? The obvious difference is the contact time with the players. You need to get used to that very, very quickly. It is true that the club level work is very, very different than international level. At club level, you can share the emotions after a win, after a loss. You're growing, you're building towards something. At international level, is more preparation, sharing a vision and being very precise with what you're trying to do in order to give clarity to players. But you do work so little with the players in truth and you are expected to do so much. I mean, the pressure is incredible. How much does an international manager actually do in-game? If you dissect the game, it's exactly the same. The preparation for a game in a club, maybe you're going to take three, four sessions to prepare a game, especially in the Premier League that you play three games in seven days. The contrast of styles forces you to work and prepare games in a very small period of time. I think that's the same at international level. The difficulty is when you finish the camp, then you haven't got that time with the players to review things, to try to improve in certain aspects, to share the emotions. I think that's been the hardest bit. And you have to wait months before you can play again to the storyline if you do lose, which you've not done a lot, but it kind of stays with you. I mean, Jurgen Klinsmann used to talk about how as a club manager, you could correct a bad result, please God, almost immediately. But when you lose an international game, that narrative stays with you for two months. And the pressure then become so different because a nation's hopes, they do, they ride on your shoulders, Roberto. Luis Scolari once complained that every soccer fan feels that they know better than the national team coach. He, he talked about how being Brazil's coach was the most incredible pressure, he said, because he lived in a nation where 180 million people feel they know better than the manager. Do you experience the pressure differently from when you were a club manager? The fear that I had is that I didn't want to leave the club level expectations or the club level demands to go into a job at international level that it will be too slow. The reality is that when you are in a team like the one we have with Belgium, with the quality that we have, the expectations and the demands are exactly the same that we have at club level. And it is true that from game to game, you have to cope with players that they're going to lose their form for the next time you see them, players that get injured. You become a little bit more used to coping with variables that probably at club level you don't. Uh, club level is a bit more consistent. You're trying to work in certain ways that you're going to see the evolution day to day. But international level has got uh, other benefits. I think seeing the whole nation behind the players, uh, the players share that responsibility of being ambassadors for the whole country is quite unique. The players become different footballers when they represent their countries. When you're in a club discipline, everything is done for you. Everything is a clear direction. It's almost you know how to do every step. When you become an international footballer, it's almost you need to take control of what you can bring to the group, how you can be ready when you need it. There is no margin of error. International football forces you to be ready whenever the moment comes your way. That's at every level, but more for the footballer that is on the pitch. And that brings a real sense of responsibility as a footballer that when you go back to the club level it's almost that you're ready to be mature and bring something to the group rather than wait to what the group demands from you. You talk about how as a manager you've gotten used to the variables with which you are grappling with many of which are completely out of your control once they go back to the the club setting. How much communication do you have with your players in between games when they are under the control the aegis of their club their club manager? How do you communicate? Unilateral communication. And this is, you <laughs> communicate with your players that you follow every single move that they make 
on a football pitch. On a weekly basis, I will be watching probably between 25 and 27 football games where I can see all the players that we follow. That is around 45 players. But you don't expect the footballer to have a relationship back because it would be unfair. It would be wrong. Maybe my biggest advantage is that I've been for the last seven seasons in the Premier League that I know that sometimes international football gets on the way of club football and the other way around. So I think it's unfair to distract players and even though you you almost desperate to share some sort of a comment with a player of what you've seen you need to be very respectful of allowing the player to concentrate at the club level and allow them to work towards the next game and prepare the next game because I've been in that position but it is a unilateral way of communicating. So how are you communicating? You're a big texter, big whatsapper. No you don't communicate, it's, the communication is that you see them performing on the pitch and it's almost a, a football <laughs> a football communication you get a lot of information through the emotions that they show you see players at times in great moments of form enjoying real highs other players that they find in difficulty the confidence is low or a moment that they've been dropped from the starting 11 injuries play a big part you have to be very careful that you don't distract them from what they should be doing which is fighting to become successful at the club level and then at the end of it I'll be able to see them at an international scene. I, I do remember when you were a club manager at Everton Football Club, you were often frustrated with the international team's treatment of your players. I mean, particularly Ireland. Seamus Coleman, the way he was treated. James McCarthy coming off an injury, not pleased. As being an international manager, is it completely 180'd your understanding of the club-country conflict? No, I think it's the opposite. Is I try to use my experiences at club level to try to forge better relationships with the clubs. What we do in the Belgium Federation, we're trying to establish a relationship with the clubs where the player can benefit from it. So we'll share information. And I think that's valuable to be in a club level's role, allowed me to see the things that they could have been done better. And I know it's difficult because international football and club level football don't go hand by hand. But I think if you do it in an open and honest manner, the benefit goes down then straight to the player rather than making it a difficult position for the player. Is it hard to be an international manager when a player's club manager is, say, Pep Guardiola and you have to compete with the tactical ideas that that club manager has put in the player's mind, say KDB, on a day-to-day basis? No, no, it's the opposite. When you see a very successful team developing certain footballing concepts or certain ideas and seeing the players executing those, I think it's important that you use that. But it is the difficulty of bringing different styles of teams where the players participate to try to come and have our own identity and our own idea that it suits all the players and I think that goes down to the mindset. You could speak about the technical aspects, the tactical aspects of every single player but I think it's more important is the strength that you've got mentally of becoming a team in a very quick period of time, enjoying the responsibility of representing your country and finding that common ground of enjoying each other's company in a dressing room to become a winning team. That probably is the hardest aspect to work at the international level. Let's talk about Belgian football for a moment, because it is a remarkable culture, Roberto. They have a population of roughly 11.35 million. It's smaller than New York and Los Angeles if they were combined. But you've produced an unparalleled generation of Premier League stars. I'm asking this as an American concerned with our own youth development system, how are Belgium producing so many world-class footballers? It's a phenomenal example in world football. And I think it goes down to the initial approach. It's not about the federation. It's not about 
football in general in Belgium is about the player. 12 years ago, it was a real good sit down with the main figures of Belgian football and they decided to describe what would be the future of Belgian football. And in those talks, they analyzed many cultures of footballing nations around Belgium and they come up with a plan of playing in a certain way and being very, very clear and inclusive of all the institutions that they were part of the development of a young player. So the top sports schools in the Flemish side, the schools in the Wallonia part, uh, they all came together with playing a clear system and developing the players in the same manner. So the two cultures in Belgium, the Flemish culture, the Walloon culture, the <laughs> same style of football in both? In both parts of the country, it would be trying to deliver the same substance towards the players. So that means that when they came together, they had real clarity and it wasn't a clash of way of working. And then they developed a technical type of football that players had to be very comfortable with the ball. They could be good in 1v1 situations and then very open-minded. Open-minded and being flexible in ways of playing. And that's why when I was in the Premier League, you always would look into the Belgian players as players that they could come in, fit in, never give you a problem in terms of understanding of what's needed. They are team players. And that's quite sensational in terms of having the individual quality that a player can have, but that team player mentality. And that goes back to 12, 13 years, I would say, that the Belgium Federation described the direction for everyone to develop a player in a certain manner. And the results are here. Now, the biggest job that we have in hands is, one, take advantage of this generation, but second is making sure that this generation gets followed with other youngsters that they can fulfill the high standards that this group of players that they've already set. Mentally adaptable, the Belgian player, not just in the football setting, but also mentally adaptable within Europe. There's a hardy tenacity mentally. They are willing to go to France. They're willing to go to Germany. They're willing to leave their home, go to England and thrive. Totally. I think that's the biggest difference when you see a youngster developing into a footballer, but that he can speak three languages, that he's aware that not everything is always in the same structure, that there are different ways of believing into doing things and wanting to be part of it. No blame culture, no excuse culture. And that's probably from a mentality point of view, we've got probably 95% of our squad, they are playing abroad. So they are good footballers that they leave Belgium and they become footballing stars that they represent Belgium. and they got an incredible, humble feel about what they do, and that's a really good example. At Everton, you went about immersing yourself in the club's DNA and its history. How have you gone about that process of cultural, historical familiarity with Belgium? Geographically, it's very easy to travel within Belgium. You go from beautiful cities like Ghent and Bruges to the south with Charleroi and outside Brussels. They got real beautiful historical points where football is played in a very different way than in other parts of Belgium. But I think understanding where our players were brought up, the way that they developed their skills, the thought behind it, the way that the fans understand the game, I think is essential for any football coach. And the last 16 months I've been doing that, following a lot of games and getting into probably the footballing culture that the Belgian fan and the Belgian player get surrounded by. Question from a listener, GFOP at Russ Brady. What's a Flemish Walloon dynamic like for you within the Belgian squad? I know it's been a deep divide in years past. What we experience in our dressing room is that there is a common ground. There is a sense of aspiration in trying to be together in order to become a winning 
group. When we come together, we don't start from the position of if you are Flemish or Wallonia or from the Brussels area, you come in because you share the aspiration of becoming part of a team. And I think that's been really powerful to see a football team that they come together, that they inspire the rest of the nation in order to be close to each other to achieve something special for Belgium. Which is rare within the Belgian setting. Mark Wilmot's war pig, your predecessor, told me that the gentleman who's made the biggest difference in the Flemish Walloon dynamic is Vincent Company, Congolese Belgian, able to speak Flemish and Walloon. He's been the man who's broken down the silos that have hampered the team in generations past. Looking at this group of players that they started with the Olympic Games and they grew together, it's understanding each other in the human level before you can become a football team. Certain individuals had a bigger role, leaders that they are very influential, Vincent Company is one of those. And I think it's more important now that you get younger players that they've been influenced in the last two major tournaments to take a leading role in that and not relying on just one or two footballers. It's more relying on each other, how we can become a stronger group. But it is a human group dynamics exercise before you can become a football team. Biggest flashpoints now, just the argument about mayo and chips. But when you talk about history... For this team, recent tournaments, World Cup 2014, Euro 2016, your team promised so much and then damp squibbed in the quarterfinals. Oh, Wales. How much does an international team's history, their past performances, play through to the present or is each squad unique? It does play a big role. The psychological approach is essential when you go into a very short period of time to be together. When you look at the favourites in World Cups, it's always nations that they've won the World Cup already. That it shows you that the previous generation, in a way, they set a way of becoming a winning team. So if you're looking in the last 26, 27 years, there's only been five nations and everyone speaks about those because they've done it because they won it so there is a psychological door that you have to open so it is difficult when you got a brand new generation that they cannot follow the guidance of a previous generation that won a major tournament in a way that you can see a lot of similarities with what happened in France 98 with a nation with an incredible group of players but they didn't have that know-how of winning a major tournament it happened with Spain in 2006 of winning that first major trophy our biggest work is going to be to believe uh, to have that psychological belief that we can win a major tournament when we've never done it before how would you do that so if there's something inherent about winning in german dna and spanish dna they have the knowledge of going deep into tournaments that other lesser nations lack how do you compensate to take that next step up you need to grow into the tournament i think you need to be very clear with that details the margins that they make nations champions in major tournaments and you could look back now into how France did it and we got a clear influence with one of our staff members in Thierry Henry. He had the first-hand experience of being in that dressing room. Now a coaching assistant on your Yes, team. and he's got a major influence in us as a team because he can almost see how the player in the Belgium setup now is going through that expectation, that belief that this could be the generation that they could do something special. It is a meticulous 
part of the preparation where you can affect small details. If you look back the first time that Spain won the World Cup, you have to go through a little penalty shootout. You have to go through a period that you could face adversity and you need to react as a group. Which really your team strongly. has not done. It, it no. did not face adversity in qualifying. And that's something that we are very, very aware. And I think in the next seven months, we will look into face opposition where we're going to be pushed to the limit. And I think it's needed. You cannot become a winning team without facing adversity or knowing how to react on facing adversity. How does Thierry Henry actually do it as a coaching assistant? You, you've called him a psychological weapon. What does he do? And how is it just having him walking around, being there, his presence? We got Thierry. What is he imparting on the players that's given them that extra dimension? Thierry brings his own experience as probably one of the best strikers that the game has produced. He's got the intelligence of bringing those experiences into very clear messages in specific moments to players. His attention to detail in the training round is a real enjoyable part of the work. Any specific drill that you want to do in the training ground with a striker is going to get a lot of benefit from coming from someone that has been in that position that he had to find a way and he did find a way to become a world champion. The World Cup draw was December the 1st. Be honest, when the ball was pulled out and you realised that your Belgium would play England in group play, a team and a country that you are so familiar with, the players, your players know them better than any others. What was your instant emotion in that second? Was it dread or was it delight? I don't think you get either or. I think the draw is there and you need to make it good by winning the games. Uh, there's no such a thing. Many people have asked me, is that a good draw? It's a good draw if you win your games. It's a bad draw if you lose your games. In the World Cup, if you want to do well, you have to be able to face anyone. It is true that the links are there for all the players. The majority of our players, they're going to be sharing dressing rooms up and down the Premier League together, going through motions to win football games, and then they're going to be facing each other. I think it would have been difficult to face England in a knockout phase. In a way, you're going to draw a negative out of it. One of the two nations are not going to go through. I think in the group stage, you can hope to make it a successful story for both, and you can still progress. You told the media there were no secrets about Belgium from England or for us, Belgium, about the England team. Does that make it more difficult, the fact that you know everything about the other team? Or does it actually make it harder to build a tactical game plan? It's a game that you have to prepare from the understanding of knowing each other. And it's almost a club-level game. You've got the understanding of the style. You've got the understanding of the individuals. You've got the understanding of the expectations. In that respect, I think it's going to be a pure football game where the secrets are not going to be developed over the 90 minutes, which with other nations, uh, it could be the case in a World Cup. Yeah, how do you go about filling in your understanding of the Panamanian and Tunisian teams? I mean, how far in advance are you scouting those teams, those players? With the draw now complete, are you going back and watching their previous games on the tape? How do you go about building your game plan for the lesser-known games. You're trying to draw parallels on what games we could prepare in a friendly stage to try to replicate that. I don't think it's down to the detail of the players from now until having the list of 23 footballers that they're going to represent their nations. There are many variables that you could be distracted by. But it is true that the intensity, the intent, the way that these teams compete is very different to what we do in Europe. The play that they have is something that we should try to replicate in a friendly. And I think that's where they work is and more than anything probably the detailed information of the players will come a little bit further down the line when we got the clarity of who we are facing one tip from brutal experience just make sure you mark roman torres 
your daughter, four-year-old Luella. She's English, born and bred. You've got a Scottish wife, Beth. There's divided royalties in the Martinez house. Did it break your daughter's heart when you told her that because you're playing England last, they may have nothing to play for by the time you kick off? Well, no, I think I need to win that battle first and make sure that she supports the right team. She's only four, but she has a real understanding of what her nation is. And she had it very clear that she had to support England in that respect. But I think I still got a job to do to explain to her that maybe she'll have to support the Belgium side <laughs> on, the third, on the third game. Now that the draw is known, can you talk about the tasks that lie ahead as you go to battle mode? It's all real now. How much of time is spent scouting your players? How much the opposition and how much on just the Russia 2018 logistics like base camps, travel, hotels? The logistics now, they're all done. The logistics part started 13 months ago. I found it very tough because you're starting to prepare something that you're not even qualified for. And I think you bring bad karma. But it is true that you have to do it. And then if you don't use it, so be it. We found a base camp in Moscow that is going to be really good for us. We've been a bit unfortunate. Group G is a lot of traveling. You need to go to Kaliningrad, you go to Sochi. And you got about 3,600 miles. Yes. I think the base camp in Moscow allows us to have a period of 10 days totally consistent and we're going to be able to use that time in a good way. The opposition is important. You need to have information about who you're playing against. But I think the major, major part of our work is to be a clear team of knowing what we have to do and how to react in front of adversity. And that's going to be the toughest part, that it will start once we get together at the end of May. You didn't experience a World Cup as a player. It is an intense crucible, a 30-day experience, a 30-day journey of team culture building. I mean, the big decisions, how public or private to make the team's base too public and the team lose focus, too private and the players get bored and slowly go insane. What knowledge base are you drawing on to make these big tactical decisions operationally that have massive consequences when you are 24 hours with your players it becomes a little bit like the pre-season camps that you have a club level in many little aspects it's going to be exactly the same you need to be very aware of the downtime of the players you need to be very aware of working with the mental fatigue that these players have developed over the last 10 months in order to be in a major tournament those aspects are the ones that happen in any football team when they are 24 hours a day together. I've been fortunate enough to follow the last two World Cups. One of those, we shared some good memories as well. You're still traumatised. <laughs> I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> You've got to approach the complex puzzle of picking the World Cup 23. Based on the FIFA calendar, you don't have much time with your players in camp. How do you go about this process? Do you pick the 23 best players as individuals or the 23 best collectively as a group? It is the toughest part of the job, without a doubt. But I think the way you go about it is just to select the best possible balanced team. Individuals, of course, are important. It spreads out into the last 16 months. There's been the qualifying campaign that you get a real feeling of how the players can cope with the pressure of being away from their comfort places for a long, long time, representing the countries and making sure that the partnerships on the pitch are well-balanced and allows the individual to become very important on the structure of the team. It is a bit of a combination, combination of the moments of form and the performances that the players are going to have from now till the squad needs to be announced and very much looking back on all the experiences that we had while we've been qualifying and in the last 16 months. How hard do you anticipate it will be to have the conversation with players who you have to tell 
you're not going to make it. But I think that's nothing different that you get. In a club discipline, you have to sell players, you have to pick 11s out of 23, 24 squad players. That's the life of a manager. And it's never a nice moment, but it's a moment that is part of your job and you have to do it. What is success for Belgium at the 2018 World Cup? To become a team that we can compete and we can perform against whoever we've got in front of us. It's not about setting where we want to get. You have to go to the World Cup to try to go as far as we can and try to win the competition. But we all know that you can only achieve that if you are as good as you can and if you are a group of individuals that you become a very strong team for the tournament. What will it take for Belgium to win the World Cup in your mind? To be able to cope with adversity, to be able to cope with the expectations that the team has generated with the qualifying campaign and previous big competitions. And it would take a really stubborn period of seeing a group of players with a lot of talent enjoying the football and enjoying the responsibility of being a strong part and disciplined part of a team. The stakes for you are massive. I mean, international manager plays so many roles. Spokesperson, psychologist, inter-team communicator, ambassador, but almost all of them end up in one role which is scapegoat. If Belgium go deep into this tournament and even win it, your reputation will be transformed forever as the man who took this team that had so much talent to the next step. How often do you put your head on your pillow at night, Roberto, and dream about World Cup Russia 2018? You don't dream about that. I think the moment that you start thinking about visions and the overall occasion you cannot really affect it. I think you go to bed every day thinking about what you can do the next day that is going to make you better to go to the World Cup. I think that's a big difference. Having those small steps that you can affect are essential in order to achieve something that it would be a dream for everyone in Belgium. But the moment that as a coach or as a player you think about the occasion, you normally lose the 90 minutes game. You've never had a World Cup stress dream where you turn around to Marouane Fellaini on the bench and he's not got any shorts on. Right? <laughs> You've never had a stress dream. No yet. No yet. I will let you know straight away if I got one of those. You're going to have one of those tonight. <laughs> Last question. How well do you know the lyrics to the Belgian national anthem? La Brabant song. Really well, because it's a very important anthem in the fact that it brings the diversity that we have in the country. There is some lines that they are in French, some lines that are in Flemish. They all bring a common message that is a little bit the history of what Belgium has. But I think what you realize is that when the football team comes together, there's a powerful weapon, probably the most powerful weapon that I've seen of bringing the whole nation together and everyone forgets about where you were born within Belgium or how you became a Belgium national. It's just you've got that little bit of a spark inside of you, having an incredible joy of following a football team that they do play with that in mind and carrying that responsibility. Roberto, it's a joy to hear you talk about that as there will be 11.3 million Belgians cheering every step that team, your team, take on a World Cup field in 2018 and I believe there may be probably two or three times that in the United States now following your every move we wish you and the Red Devils of Belgium courage or moot uh, as they say in parts of your country thanks for being with us real pleasure Roger thank you hey Prime members You can listen to Men in Blazers ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Okay, so if you had a time machine, how far mm-hmm. in time would you need to go back to be a dominant basketball player of that era? <laughs> I need to go to when Bob Cousy was playing. Back I in, would, in the plumber 27-year-old days? 27-year-old Shea would give Bob Cousy the f***ing business. <laughs> He's not guarding me. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondering. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the best. Each week, Shay and I are combing through all of the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling ones, and then handing out six pop culture-themed trophies for six basketball-related activities. Trophies like the Dominic Toretto I Live My Life a Quarter Mile at a Time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Six Trophies ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.